Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the film streaming at BYU's International Cinema. This is our seventh podcast of winter semester 2021. I'm Mark Yamada, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by former International Cinema director Greg Stallings, who teaches at BYU and is also a very accomplished musician, which really makes him the perfect person for today's topic on film and music. How's it going, Greg? Really good, Mark. Thank you for the invitation. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing fine. Thanks for still being a part of IC, even after you've uh, gone on to bigger and better things. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, no, we're really happy to have you here because you are, of course, responsible for that great intro and outro music that we have with our podcast. But you can also probably speak to um, one of the films that we're showing, or all the films we're showing this week, but one in particular, Amazing Grace, which is a really exceptional concert film on the recording of an album of gospel music by Aretha Franklin from 1972. And it's directed by late director Sidney Pollack. And it features a younger Aretha Franklin, who's really at this point, almost in her prime, it seems like. She's had quite a few hits, I think up to this point, pop hits. She's already a star, so she has this kind of gravitational force. And during the film, you'll see some musicians from that time show up to her recording session here. Uh, So she's a star. But tell us a little bit about Aretha at this time in her career and just kind of her background. Yeah, sure. Aretha Franklin was the daughter of a very prominent Detroit minister named C.L. Franklin. And C.L. Franklin was a very musical individual as well. The whole family was musical. And he had musicians over all the time. The great jazz pianist Oscar Peterson and Art Tatum, soul singers like Smokey Robinson, Jackie Wilson were there like from morning till night. And the children would get up in the morning and there would be Oscar Peterson playing jazz piano with a bass player in the wow. living room. And so, yeah, wow. And that was very unique because he was one of the few preachers who embraced this kind of black gospel music, which was unusual at the time still. And basically, black gospel music started in that area when um, a young preacher named Thomas A. Dorsey, who was still more of a blues musician, but he wanted to be a preacher. He had a conversion in 1921 to the Lord, but he was making many selling sheet music. He wrote thousands of songs. And he played blues piano for the top blues singers of the period, like Ma Rainey. And so he was kind of like between the devil and the Lord, you know, for many years. <laughs> but um, basically, in 1931, 1932, Thomas Dorsey was still trying to make it as a religious musician. And he lost his wife and his little boy in the same two days. And he wrote this beautiful song called Precious Lord, Take My Hand as a response. Mm-hmm. And it became a huge hit and black churches in the area. But basically Thomas Dorsey came from the South. And when he came to the North, he was confronted with this hostility and rejection of his music because Mm -hmm. he wanted to mesh church music, which in the North was still very European and formal. And, you know, you had to sing note by note and don't do anything else but sing and sit there, you know, with your body completely still. He wanted to mesh or combine the church music of the North with all the music to the South. He grew up as a sharecropper and his parents, you know, were really kind of poor sharecroppers and he heard black spirituals constantly. 
But then he also heard organ music at the church where his mother played. His father was a struggling preacher. And so he combined all these things. His uncle was a blues guitarist who traveled from town to town trying to make money. Mm. And so he came to the North and he had this beautiful synthesis of not just church music, but all these black musics of his youth. And mm. he, his genius was to realize that blues music and church music wasn't formally so different. It's all based on the four to one chord progressions. We've all heard this progression in music. <laughs> And he realized that ragtime and jazz and blues and all these musics that at the time were kind of the same music in the South had the same chord progression, the same kind of tonalities. And so, you know, his genius was to mesh all these things together because he realized that jazz and blues, you know, had. Basically the same harmonic structure. Yeah. And so what's the point with Aretha Franklin? He eventually caught fire by the mid-30s. He was the major black religious musician in the North and the country, right? His songs became bestsellers, especially Precious Lord, which became eventually the famous song of Martin Luther King, which, by the way, Aretha Franklin sang at Martin Luther King's funeral because Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King was a close friend of her father. They were both preachers. At any rate, Thomas A. Dorsey was the mentor to young, aspiring gospel singers, and several of them became superstars. The most famous gospel singer of all time, besides Aretha, would be Mahalia Jackson. He was her mentor. He was mentor to a young James Cleveland, who spent hours and hours, according to Aretha's father, in the living room, mentoring Aretha eventually. And he was also (laughs) mentor to Clara Ward, who was C.L. Franklin's companion when his wife left him years behind. And so for decades, they were together. And both of them are in attendance on the second night of the filming recording of this film. At any rate, um, Thomas A. Dorsey is a major, major figure. He had this brilliant mind of synthesizing musical styles. And that's Aretha. They Hmm. say that her father would not just have her listen to the busy musicians, Oscar Peterson, Jackie Wilson, etc., but he would show her off to them. At Hmm. five years old, she was a not a virtuoso at the piano, but very proficient. She learned by ear, by listening to these jazz pianists that would visit. And at the age of 11, he took her on tour. At age 14, she cut her first album of gospel music. And so, you know, eventually she became a superstar, especially after the early 60s. In the early 60s, she was with Columbia Records, and they didn't know what to do with her. They would have her do different kinds of styles, a jazz album, a pop album, a rock album. But in 1966, she signed up with Atlantic Records, and they sent her to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and they had this kind of small little studio, and the musicians were white guys, actually. They called them rednecks, actually, Mm -hmm. people that know them with affection in a weird way. At any rate, these rednecks were virtuosos, that kind of gritty, dark, dirty blues music, and so that's when she started having these hits with these collaborations with the Muscle Shoals musicians, hits like, of course, I say a little prayer for you, respect. You make me feel like a natural woman. And then, you know, her career was always amazing. She would have some slumps, but in 1980, she signed with Arista Records, and that's when she had kind of synth pop hits with George Michael, I Knew You Were Waiting for Me, and Pink Cadillac, and songs we've all heard in movies and shopping malls, et cetera. So she was the queen of soul for decades and decades. She is the major figure of soul music 
according to many, many people. Yeah, no, I think that's why this documentary is so powerful, because she really blends these two, you know, daughter of a preacher who grows up probably singing in church, but also a pop star. And she's really kind of drawing on the power of both these forms, right? It just really comes together in this amazing documentary. I mean, she has she has so much presence, too. She walks into the church for her recording session, you know, walks down the aisle, goes up to the, the podium you know, where we've all stood to, to talk in church and she just has so much presence and a consummate performer. She's ready to go in an instant. So um, yeah. really impressive. Totally. I mean, she is in the zone. <laughs> she's what they call in mindfulness studies. She's in a flex situation. I mean, she's yeah. communing with God, especially when she sings the slower rubato songs like Amazing Grace or right. Never World. I mean, you feel the presence of God. Those are the moments <laughs> where people start hollering and yelling and saying hallelujah and dancing. And one lady faints. Actually, she's right. the mother of the woman that was his father's companion. Right. He calls her Mother Ward. At any rate, those are the most powerful moments, actually, when, you know, she just kind of lets it go. Yeah. You know, she was always essentially a soul singer is the point. There's always great soulfulness, a great kind of black church element of her voice, of her improvisations, of her technique throughout in her entire career, even in the 80s with those kind of more, dare I say, cheesier kind of records that became number one as well. <laughs> She's always the queen of soul, and it's always rooted in gospel music. Yeah, my, my, first, uh, my first memory of Aretha is watching the Blues Brothers from the early 80s. And this is about, you know, 10 years after that, and she's a cook in a, you know, a soul food cafe. And then she, you know, she busts out in, in respect, and she's, they're singing in the streets, and it's, it's amazing really this iconic moment, I think, in, in American popular music, right? This blending of these two forms. So really, really great documentary that, I mean, strangely, it's been 50 years since it was recorded. It was like 1972, so almost 50 years, right? Between yeah. the time that it was recorded and taped and when it was actually released, because it was released in 2018. Why did it take so long? Why did it take so long for people to see this, this amazing film? Yeah, that's a really great question. Well, I mentioned that she was with Atlantic Records. This is her peak with Atlantic Records. She kind of peaks right in the early to mid-70s, and then she stops selling so many records, and eventually she signs with Arista. But this is her like great moment, musicality of being a virtuoso. And so she decided to record an album at a black church, right, which is her old friend James Cleveland and his gospel choir in Southern California. And so... The parent company of Atlantic Records was Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers had had a huge hit with the movie Woodstock two years before. And they thought, this will be the new Woodstock. And they went through several directors and they thought, well, let's hire Sidney Pollack. He was nominated for an Oscar the year before, or a couple of years before for the movie. They, they shoot horses, don't they? And so he's, he was this kind of hot young director. And so they hired him and he was very enthusiastic and he loved the idea. And he had this kind of ethos of improvisation. He just showed up and didn't really have any pre-planned instructions for the camera crew. And so you see him in this film directing like a choir director, waving his arms and yelling. And he himself is running around and shooting his camera, oftentimes at lower angles and getting mm -hmm. these extreme close-ups of Cleveland's face, of Franklin's face. You know, he's such a talented guy and his own style was so musical and full of improvisation that perhaps that explains the great problem of the release of this film. He did not show up with the most important instrument for making a film about music. 
he did mm. not show up with any clapperboards. Mm. And the clapperboard is that famous instrument we've all seen. It's a board thing that kind of claps, right? To mark the time of filming and the audio. So what's mm. the point? After the filming of this film, they had hours and hours and hours, hundreds of hours of footage from small cameras, medium cameras, larger cameras that did not match any kind of audio in an easy way. Does right. that make sense? They had the auto recording and they had all these shots and, you know, yeah. <laughs> several moments were filmed like five or six times over with all these cameras and they couldn't mesh it up. It was a nightmare. And yeah. so basically he gave up after a few years of trying to do this, trying to complete the project. And then many, many years later, there is an executive of Atlantic Records who was talking to Aretha Franklin's former producer who said, you know, there's this footage sitting in the vault of Warner Brothers just sitting on the shelf gathering dust. You got to look into it. And so this is one of the great heroes of this movie. He's listed as a co-director or co-producer or something like that. Mm. Alan Elliott, who in the year 2007 mortgaged his house two times to buy this lost footage and he started piecing it together. And how did he do it? Why could he do it now and not before? Because they had digital technology on their side. And so right. it was still painstaking. He basically just kind of had no other life. He was just dedicated to this. It became his goal and mission in life. But by the year 2011, he finally had a cut of this film and he showed it to Aretha and to family members and Aretha sued him because he was using her image without her permission, basically. Yeah. And so he still tried to work with her and there were many agreements. And then in the year 2015, it was on the program of two major film festivals, Toronto and Telluride. And right before it was supposed to show on both festivals, it got pulled. And wow. Aretha, again, was threatening lawsuits. And so Aretha Franklin finally passed away, sadly, of course, in 2018, in August of that year. And within months or weeks, her family gave the green light to the release of the film. And so it was released later on in the same year, 2018. So once it was approved, it was really, really quick. But there are all kinds of theories as to why Aretha did not want the film to come out. People think that perhaps she was kind of, I don't know, embarrassed that she is so kind of quiet and different in this film. She's not the very loud and brash, you know, singer of respect. Right. You know, earlier hits, she's deferring constantly, demure towards Reverend Cleveland, who's talking all the time, her father, whatever musicians said. I think Aretha felt she was not the star of her own film. Oh. And then uh, Alan Elliott said recently that he thinks she was just really sick at the end. And to release a film like that and do it the right way, she'd have to go on publicity tours and speak about it. And so she was dying, basically, and did not want to worry about that. But Alan said that in spite of all these legal problems, she would say to him, I love the film. So he was very confused and <laughs> finally it came out. And so thank goodness it did. It's such a marvelous piece. Yeah, it's such a, a long process it goes through in order to get released. Thankfully, it was released, right? Yeah, exactly. uh, but, you know, you mentioned the style of the film being a little rough, right? You know, some of the handheld camera showing behind the scenes a little bit. Talk about that, the style. And is it fitting for this kind of film? What do you think? Yeah, you know, it's been kind of controversial. The few negative reviews have complained that we always see the camera crew. We see Sidney Pollock. If you've seen the movie, his movie Tootsie, you'll recognize his face. He's a small, minor character in Tootsie. He plays 
Dustin Hoffman's friend that tries to tell him, get some help, I'm worried about you, etc. And so you may recognize him, he's constantly in the film, and so people think that's a distraction. And other people have complained that it's kind of poorly framed because it's so kind of improvisational. But I, right. there are moments that are so beautiful. There's that framing of her figure, a medium close-up in the first half of the film where she's dressed in white and there are two microphones on each side. And a lot of people have said that's like the most beautiful framing of a black artist, perhaps in film history. There's another beautiful framing of her face where she's kind of standing in the shadows and her small afro seems like it's surrounded by a, a halo, no? Yeah. And so she's angelic in a lot of these shots. But other shots are kind of quick and a lot of kind of <laughs> meta cinematic kind of moments. And, and I think it's beautiful because it seems to be saying that this is a film about film and yeah. it's a film about the power to create a miracle, right? So right that's right. what we call Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. What is grace? <laughs> it's a gift from God. And Aretha Franklin at this period, she was a gift from God. Not just for black people, but for the entire world, right? And right. so I think it's the power of film to do something that's so different than, say, Avengers movie number 55 or Star Wars number 68 or whatever. We've seen the same film over and over and over again. And students perhaps don't have a taste for this kind of film, but, but give it a chance. It's so powerful. Yeah, well, the film is, like you mentioned, it's so historical. And it really, the you know, the story of the film is the making of the film itself. And and so I, I think it maybe was smart to include that in the editing. You probably could have edited a lot of that out, but since it's been so long, right, that really it's the, the story of how this documentary was made is, is another story and other kind of a subtext or a, a meta text, like you mentioned. In yeah, exactly. And, and I'm, I, sometimes I think that maybe Sidney Pollack would have had a very different kind of film, right, without all these moments, without himself in it. But yeah. it's these small moments that really pay off. Like, for example, when Aretha Franklin is so full of perspiration, it was January oh. 1972, but it was like burning hot in that chapel. He walks yeah. up to her while she's playing the piano and singing, and he hands her a handkerchief. Well, he mops her face. You know, he takes yeah. off the sweat of her face with his own hand, actually, and it's so tender and beautiful. Or the moment where she's singing Amazing Grace, and James Cleveland, the great gospel musician, is at the piano, always accompanying her, and he breaks down sobbing, and he has to get up, and he sits down yeah. in one of the pews and starts, takes a handkerchief himself and starts wiping off his tears and sobbing. And so it's these little moments as well that are so beautiful and so improvisational. And so, yeah, this, this film captures a miracle, I believe. Right. No, I think that's why the, the style in some ways fits it. You mentioned it's shot in the Baptist church in Southern California. And this is the middle of the, you know, the secular early 1970s in Los Angeles, Southern California. What's going on at the time? Is there a way in which the, you know, the film and, and the, this kind of performance and this, this recording session is, is figuring into the larger cultural consciousness of the time. Yeah, I, I think it is because superficially one might think Aretha Franklin, her huge, huge Atlantic hits are respect. You make me feel like a natural woman. It's like she became the voice of several movements, not just women's movements, but, you know, movements to find justice and rights for black people. Right. Even the black Panthers loved her. Everybody loved her. Right. Yeah. For a kind of, liberation and justice then she sings in a church and people might think well that's weird you know she's going backwards but she's not going backwards at all because a lot of the songs that she sings in this performance are beloved songs associated with the civil rights movement right for example she sings the song mary don't you weep which was a slave song a slave spiritual predating the civil war Hmm. but we have to remember that a lot of these 
songs had coded messages of hope and resistance and that this song became popular again and other songs she sings in this performance precisely during the civil rights movement, right? And so just a sample line from that film, I was watching it recently and I took notes, especially at this part. She sings, and Mary, don't you weep. Martha, don't mourn because you see Pharaoh's army got drowned in the Red Sea. Tell Martha not to mourn. <laughs> it's the strangest song because she's dealing with two histories, right? Yeah. Pharaoh persecuting Moses and the Israelites, Jesus giving comfort to Mary and Martha when their brother Lazaro has died. Uh, Lazarus, rather. Sorry, Lazaro in Spanish. I teach Spanish. At any rate, the point is black people really identified with the ancient Israelites and the early Christians because these are people that were liberated by the hand of God. And so that's the message of hope in these songs that black people would understand, I believe, in the past and in recent years as well. Yeah, I mentioned this the recording session having almost a gravitational force because it seems like you mentioned a few people showing up. People were just kind of showing up who knew about it going on. Mick Jagger's in the audience, I think, at one point. And Probably Watts, remember from the Stones is there as well. Yeah, and they maybe had a sense that this was going to be a, a big moment, a big event. And so interesting to see how there's awareness of this going on, this session. Aretha's a a star at this point, but she's not the kind of iconic figure that she'll become, right? But it, it right. seems like part of that. They're kind of, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she had won five Grammy Awards and had 11 number one records. And so yeah. she was definitely a star and she was in the cover of Time magazine, but she'll become like stellar superstar, like, you know, yeah. Beethoven, Pavarotti, right? You know, world-class famous. And so, yeah, but the Rolling Stones are there. And that's really interesting because you – people listening to this pay attention to the first and second night as far as the the seat arrangement the first night has a lot of empty seats the second night every seat is filled right because right. we think that the word got out right and this even the stones heard about it they were in los angeles finishing their most acclaimed album of all their albums is exxon main street which has a heavily black music gospel music component to mm-hmm. it to it and so they were there like soaking it up. Like <laughs> this is the culture they wanted to embrace. And so. Interesting. Yeah, really yeah. There is fans, but also maybe to kind of be influenced by. Her. I, think, yeah, I think they're, they're there to be taught. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. Mick Jagger is really funny because he starts off at the back and he's just getting closer and closer and closer. At the very end, he's in the front row and he's part of the, <laughs> <laughs> the audience that's clapping and cheering and, all these yeah. things of clapping and cheering and shouting and fainting and speaking in tongues. He's embracing this. And all this goes back to early gospel music. Thomas A. Dorsey was the great pioneer of all this stuff. So it's really interesting. It's like the history of black music in just, you know, an hour and a half of, of a brilliant film. Yeah. So this film was released a couple of years ago. And like we mentioned, it was filmed in 1972. It's about 50 years, almost 50 years since it was filmed. Why should our students and our audience here at BYU, why should they watch this film? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And um, I hope people come out to see the film. Well, I guess not coming out anymore. Um, <laughs> we don't have the theater. And I was going to mention, it'd be really cool to have IC show this film in a few years. I know you have a rotation and everything, but I actually nominated this film, recommended this film to Mari Laura and the, the team of directors about a year and a half ago, thinking it would be ideal to show this film in the theater, right? It's not too big of a theater. It has a great sound system. But I guess the point is, you know, as you watch it, 
or as you prepare to watch it, try not to watch it maybe on your phone, but have <laughs> at least a good pair of headphones because the music is magic. It's impressive, right? But um, yeah, I think it's really important to see this film, thinking about black history and everything that's gone on since George Floyd's murder a year ago or less than a year ago. And, you know, it's Black History Month as well, but this is Black Year. We really need to be more aware of the cultural contributions, right, of black people to our country and to the world. You know, if you think about it, all the music that people are likely to enjoy listening to this, someone's going to be a fan of rock music, other people funk music, hip-hop, punk, indie rock, heavy metal, bluegrass, even country music. Even the great classical composers of, of the United States, like George Gershwin or Bernstein or Copeland, they all said that you can't really have American classical music or country music or blues music or hip-hop music without the blues and without black gospel music. And she was the queen of gospel music. Yeah. So it's a really great opportunity to learn from her, not just about black history and black culture, but also about spirituality. I promise if you come into this movie with an open mind, with an open heart, you will have a spiritual experience. You will be crying, perhaps against your will. Mm. Every time I watch it, I start weeping at certain moments of this film. I've talked to hardcore agnostics and people that are struggling with their beliefs, at least, or even atheists that tell me that they broke down and wept as they watched this film. So black people have so much, right, to teach us, and they've made such a, an important contribution and Aretha does all that, but she also touches our heart and will make you a believer again if you're struggling a little bit with your faith or beliefs, I believe. Wow. Powerful endorsement, Greg. Thank you so much. Yeah, I can't say more. <laughs> you know, I think of all the films I've seen in the past decade, and you know, you know, I've seen a lot, right? Literally thousands of films when I've been IC director or co-director, you know, three times. We're talking about over 100 films every year, hundreds of films sometimes, but of all the films I've seen related to music, this is the one film that I would say do not like <laughs> go through this life without sitting down to watch this film in earnest and give it a chance. It'll really touch your heart. Well, yeah, thank you so much. I mean, it was when I watched it, it was it was a message of hope during these difficult times right now. But like you said, digitally remastered. So you really have to listen to it, watch it on a good sound system. Hopefully in a few years, we can bring it back and do it justice, right? With um, right. a good cinematic experience. And so uh, we'll be looking forward to that. That'd be so wonderful. I, I've read a, a lot of reviews. You just go on Rotten Tomatoes, you can find tons of reviews for a certain movie. And almost every single review said, do not watch this on your phone. Do not watch this on your little laptop. You know? Yeah. Find not, not a huge theater, but a medium size or small theater with a good sound system. And you will feel like you're part of that audience and you will stand up and start clapping and cheering. And people that have seen the film in that context, which I have not have told me that they, you know, would be in an audience at first sitting stone still. Right. And by halfway through the movie, people are cheering and standing up and even dancing. And so right. it's an amazing experience. Yeah. Amazing grace is the title says. Well, with that endorsement, make sure to see Amazing Grace streaming at IC this week. Well, thanks, Greg, for joining us and for that really powerful endorsement and for that really informative look at gospel music and the documentary and Aretha Franklin. Well, it's been my pleasure. It's been really a labor of love to go back to this film and read more about it, learn more about it and, and learn from the master Aretha Franklin.
Well, thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Tune into our podcast each week for insightful discussion of the film streaming at IC by specialists who'll be joining us on our podcast this semester. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, our sound engineer, Maria Hegstrom Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. We'd also like to acknowledge the musical talents of Professor Greg Stallings and his son Johnny, who are responsible for our great intro and outro music. Until next week, keep streaming. Keep streaming.